We're in the book of Genesis, and the title of this series is Faith Journey. Faith Journey. Uh, This message is about faith under dark clouds. What does it look like to walk with faith when the clouds gather, the sky darkens, and the wind picks up? What does it look like to walk by faith in the midst of a storm? On uh, June 23rd, the skies darkened for many in Europe. You know, one of the things I enjoy about tropical climates is actually that scene where clouds gather, the sky darkens, the wind picks up, and you run for cover, trying to avoid the storm. But what if that storm on the horizon is actually quite ominous, and you think that it actually will affect your life? Europeans have been going through this over the past number of days. Ten days ago, Brexit actually happened. Brexit, the union of those two words, Britain and exit. The unthinkable for many, an unexpected storm. What does it mean for a European that believes in God to live with faith in this moment? The Economist, a British journal, writes, the vote to quit the European Union will do grave and lasting harm to the politics and economy of Britain. The loss of one of the EU's biggest members will gouge a deep wound in the rest of Europe. It will mark a defeat for the liberal order that has underpinned the West's prosperity. So this British journal, The Economist, argues that the very foundations of the West's prosperity, those foundations are being shaken. All of us are impacted by what's happening on the world scene in some way political shifts, social change, economic uncertainty, but often the storm actually hits much closer to home. There are tensions in the home. There are demands in the workplace. There are unexpected traumatic events, serious illness. Our children, they face tests, exams along the way. What does it look like to live with faith when the clouds darken on the horizon? The faith journey will test us in the areas of dependence. Who do we actually rely on? It will test our integrity. You'll remember that Abram was called by God when he was in Ur of the Chaldeans. God spoke to him, go from your country, from your kindred and your family to the land that I will show you. And he journeyed with his extended family to Haran. The family stayed there for a time. And then in Haran, he heard that same word again, go from your country, from your kindred, from your family, to the land that I will show you. And he journeyed with family and Lot down to Canaan. When when he arrived in Shechem, the Lord spoke to him and said, this is the land which will be your inheritance. He meanders around Canaan for a time and then famine hits Canaan. He doesn't hear from God. He chooses on his own to go down to Egypt. What does it look like to follow God when the clouds darken on the horizon? When it appears that a storm is coming or we find ourselves in the midst of a storm? Abram, now that famine is hit, will he depend on the wealth of Egypt? When he goes down to Egypt... Will his values change? The way that he believes in God, the way that he follows God, will it change because of the storm that he is experiencing in his life? And we find that he actually makes a decision that endangers his wife. 
The book of Genesis teaches us what it means to walk with God. You'll remember that Genesis, from the beginning, it talks about what it means to be created in the image of God. And we are to be blessed by God, live under his blessing, and be channels of blessing. It's the definition of being a priest. We are to live as priests. Well, if we're following God, we will face storms in life. Our faith will be tested. And the question this morning is, what does it look like to live with faith when the storm hits? On dark days, what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? The main idea is that a priest of God, most high, will love, will worship, and will refuse. What will a priest of God, most high, love? What will he or she worship? What will he or she refuse? Well, today's text will help us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for just for the gift of family, for the joy of being together as your people. Thank you for the freedom to worship your holy name. Thank you that you're present by your spirit to teach us. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through your word, and we ask that you teach us this morning, I pray again, God, that nothing I say would stray from your word. Would on, may only your living and active word remain with your people. That word that will encourage them today, that will build them up, that will correct them where necessary, that will spur them on to greater faithfulness. And so we submit ourselves to you and ask for your direction. In Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 13 of Genesis, Abram returns from Egypt and he tents near Hebron at the Oaks of Mamre. At about the same time, four kings from Mesopotamia joined forces. In Genesis chapter 14, Shinar, that's Babylonia, Elam, Elasser, most likely Mari, and Goying, which is the Hebrew word for Gentile nations, and most scholars believe that Goyim refers to the Hittites because title, the name mentioned, is the name of a Hittite king. And so these four kingdoms are joining together. They are rallying for war. Why? Well, there are five city-states here at the southern end of the Dead Sea, five city-states that have been under the rule of the king of Babylonia, Sherdo Leomer. After paying tribute for 12 years, they decide, enough, they rebel in the 13th year. And in the 14th year, the king of Shinar, Sherdoleomer, he calls together his allies and they begin to march toward Canaan. If you read through Genesis chapter 14, the first 12 verses, you'll see the names of many places. And when you look through those place names, you realize that the four kings from Mesopotamia, they are coming down what is known as Transjordan, this hill country here east of the Jordan River. They conquer six city-states along the way, raid, plunder. They go all the way south to El Paran, which is on the Gulf of Aqaba, and then they turn north and they raid and plunder the Amalekites, the Amorites, and finally they arrive in the valley of Sidim, south of the Dead Sea. And here they clash with these five kings that reign in this southern region, south of the Dead Sea, Sodom, Gomorrah, Bela, Adma, and Zeboim. The clash happens here in the Sidim Valley, and the four kings from Mesopotamia quickly rout those five kings. They conquer them, 
plunder their cities, and then go north. And as they go north, they are taking with them Lot, the nephew of Abram, his wives and his possessions. And the question is, what will Abram do? So this is the background for the text that we will read. Verse 13 of Genesis chapter 14. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Ener. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So Abram, when he hears that Lot has been taken captive, he pursues the kings of Mesopotamia. 318 men, trained men, read slaves. Born in his household, 318 slaves, trained for military service. They go north with their allies, Mamre, Aner, Eshkol, probably the heads of aristocratic families from Hebron. These allies pursue the kings of Mesopotamia, and they overtake those kings of Mesopotamia in Dan, the northern extremity of Canaan. By night, Abram divides the forces, and they overtake the kings of Mesopotamia and defeat them in a nighttime assault chases the kings of Mesopotamia north past Damascus all the way to Hobah, literally runs them out of the country. And in doing that, Abram rescues Lot, his wives, and recaptures his possessions. Abram is referred to as the Hebrew. This is the first time that word Hebrew appears in the Bible. Probably here to state that Abram is the true Hebrew. He's a model Hebrew. He's a loyal Hebrew. What can we learn from Abram here? Well, on his faith journey, he continues to face trials and temptations. His faith is tested along the way. His faith in God, his faith in the promises of God. He's learning what it means to be a man blessed by God, to be a channel of his blessing. He has learned from his Egyptian experience where he was double-minded, where he was cowardly. Now with courage, he pursues the four kings of Mesopotamia. With faith, his faith, it propels him forward and he acts to rescue his nephew who in his foolishness has identified with with Sodom. It's interesting to read Lot's story. He chooses Sodom, chapter 12. Then he camps near Sodom. Then he lives in Sodom. He dwells in Sodom. He identifies with Sodom. Despite his foolishness, Abram is loyal to him. Abram risks his life and his fortune to save his nephew. He honors the family bond of love, the covenant that he has made with Lot. First point, a priest of God most high is loyal to the bonds of love, despite the foolishness of others, is loyal to the bonds of love, despite the foolishness of others. You've probably heard me say that in my home we were four boys, And it wasn't unusual for us to fight amongst ourselves, to fight with one another. But if someone would touch or attack one of the brothers, we would unite, we would turn. The fighting amongst us would end. We didn't need to huddle, we didn't need a committee meeting. We knew that we would defend our brother. 
We would just say to ourselves, we don't know how this is going to end. If we are the ones judging, if we are the jury, then the jury is not in your favor. We will fight to the end because we are brothers. Brotherly love. That's the bond of brotherly love. What can we learn from Abram? Well, he was loyal to the covenant with Lot, loyal to family. And the question for us is, are we loyal in that way to family, those that we have covenanted with, whether it be a spouse, family member, or the family of faith? Sooner or later, the clouds will form on the horizon. They will darken. The wind will pick up. We'll find ourselves in a storm. And in a storm, as priests of God Most High, will we be loyal to the bonds of love? Verse 17, after his return from the defeat of Sherdoleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So on his way back to Hebron, after defeating the four kings of Mesopotamia, Abram is carrying the wealth of the six city-states here east of the Jordan Valley. He's always carrying, also carrying with him the wealth of these five city-states to the south of the Dead Sea. Wealth, possessions, people. Will he allow this to make him prosperous, to become the great nation that God has promised he will be, or to be, to have that great name that God has said he will have, he will carry? It's a moment of temptation, right? Great success can be a moment of grave danger for any person. He travels south through the valley of Shaveh, which would be to the east of Salem, the king's valley. Salem is probably also referring to Jerusalem. But he travels through the king's valley, the valley of Shaveh, and there in that valley, the kings of Sodom and Salem come out to meet him. We're to notice... The contrast between the way that Abram responds to the offering from the king of Sodom and the blessing from the king of Salem. The contrast between what the king of Salem offers and what the king of Sodom offers. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. To him, Abram apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. What is the author of Hebrews saying? Well, Salem sounds like the Hebrew word for peace, shalom. Melchizedek is king of peace. His name, Melchizedek, also means king of righteousness. And so, what will the king of righteousness, what will the king of peace offer to Abram? He comes with bread and wine. It symbolizes a royal banquet. Early Christian theologians often understood that it 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 foreshadowed the Lord's Supper. For certain, a royal banquet and a blessing. 
We don't know where Melchizedek comes from. There's nothing said about his origin, his ancestry. There's nothing that is said about his death, his fate. We don't know where he came from. We don't know how he died. What we do know about Melchizedek is that he's priest of God Most High. Abram receives him as priest of God Most High. He worships the sovereign God of the universe. When you read through the book of Daniel, you will see God being referred to as God Most High. And when that happens, God is referred to as the one who rules over the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills. And so Abram recognizes Melchizedek as being a worshiper of that God. Melchizedek is walking within the purpose for which he was created, and he mediates a blessing to Abram. Look at verse 19. Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Melchizedek gives all of the glory to God, the possessor of heaven and earth, the creator of heaven and earth, the source of strength, the source of life, the source of joy in the trials of life. What he says, it it reminds us of Psalm 121 verse 2. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. The climax of the story here in chapter 14 is not Abram's victory over his enemies. It is this moment of worship, of tremendous worship, of just blessing God for who he is, reminding Abram of the reason for his victory. And so Abram is coming back, carrying tremendous wealth, a temptation before him, a test before him. And the priest of God Most High meets him and says, Abram, You achieved victory. What happened here, north of Dan, or in Dan, that victory, it was given by God Most High. It came from his hand. And Abram recognizes Melchizedek to be speaking the truth. This faith statement from Melchizedek is just the sun shining through the dark clouds. It's a recognition of God as the true victor. A priest of God Most High always gives all glory to God Most High for every provision and every victory along the way. All of the glory, all of the honor to God Most High for every provision, for every victory. What does Abram do? Well, he gives a tenth of everything to the king of Salem. And when he does that, he recognizes the truthfulness of what Melchizedek has said. He signals that the Lord is the victor. He receives Melchizedek as a priest of God Most High. The book of Genesis, as we read through the early chapters, it reveals that many have considered themselves to be owners of their lives, to be owners of their property. Just this chapter, verse 14, the word king appears 28 times. Throughout history, people believe that they determine their own, in, their own destiny, that they own their own lives that they determine the meaning of their lives, that they are the owners of their property. The truth that we receive through Scripture is that God is the possessor of heaven and earth. Every life is to be lived for Him. He is the only one that can bless a life, that can give meaning to a life. Eric Liddell, he understood this. Maybe you have heard his story. Eric Liddell, he lived in the early part of the 20th century. He was a tremendous athlete. He ran for Scotland in the 1924 Paris Olympics. He was slated to run the 100-meter race. When he discovered 
that the, that the uh, trial heats for the 100-meter race would be held on a Sunday, he decided not to run. Eric Liddell understood that God was the possess- possessor of heaven and earth, and that God had created an order, and that the Sabbath was the Lord's day. And if his race was slated, the trial heats were slated for a Sunday, he would not run out of submission to God. He faced tremendous opposition for having made that decision, but he held firm to his convictions. Through a series of events, he was then asked to run in the 400-meter race. He not only won that race, he set a world record. Now, what we are to learn from this story is not that every time we submit to God, we will set a world record. (laughs) But Eric Liddell is a tremendous example of a man who who submitted to God as the one who had given life, who possesses heaven and earth, and he was willing to follow him no matter what the cost. At 23, he abandoned his athletic career, all of the glory that he would have received by running for Scotland. He accepted the call to be a missionary in China. At 23, he left for China, served God there, And when World War II broke out, when the clouds gathered over the globe during World War II, Eric Liddell had the opportunity to leave China, but he decided to identify with the Chinese people. He decided to stay. He understood that to be his calling, and he ended up in a prisoner of war camp in occupied China. He died in that prisoner of war camp at the age of 43, died from a brain tumor. He understood that his life was an act of submission to God. He never considered what he had given up as a loss. He understood, like Melchizedek, that God was the owner of his life and that God would determine his destiny, that what he had been given was a gift from God and he was willing to pour out his life for the Chinese people. He gave. Now look at what the king of Sodom does in verse 21. In marked contrast to Melchizedek, the king of Sodom doesn't bring anything to Abram. He addresses him rudely. Verse 21 of chapter 14. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. His first words are, Give me. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share. You notice that the king of Sodom expresses no gratitude to God. He dishonors Abram. He just says, give me the persons. He tempts Abram with the plunder. Take the goods for yourself. Notice the contrast between the king of Salem and the king of Sodom. The king of Salem comes out, he brings out bread and wine, a royal banquet. He blesses Abram. His first words are, blessed be Abram. The king of Sodom, he went out and he demanded. And his first words are, give me. What does Abram do? He rejects the offer of the king of Sodom with an oath. 
Verse 22. I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. On the way to becoming a great nation, on the way to receiving a great name, Abram will depend on God, not on human kings, not on their gifts or the spoils of war. On the way to receiving the blessings promised in chapter 12, land, descendants, blessings, being a blessing to the nations, he will rely on God alone and he will glorify God alone. He will not bow to the lure of material blessing from Sodom. He will remain above reproach before his neighbors. He will not touch the glory that belongs to God alone. A priest of God Most High does not fall to the lure of mixed blessings. Does not fall to the lure of mixed blessings. Along the way, we will all be tempted by mixed blessings. If you go to school, sooner or later, you'll be tempted by a shortcut to academic success. Shortcuts will be offered to you. As you go through life, Someone will come to you with a get-rich-quick scheme. You'll be tempted by a dishonorable way to win a a competition. About 20 years ago, Judy and I, we were making enough money to live, but the margins were tight. We were missionaries. And here's a word of advice. If you want to get rich, don't become a missionary. Margins were tight. And an acquaintance came to me and said, Ray... If you invest in this project, I guarantee it, you will triple your money in six months. Tempting when the margins are tight. During that same week, I'd been reading through the Old Testament, and this was God's grace to me, but he was just making it very clear to me that the great inheritance in life is God himself. The great blessing in life is to know God most high. And so that was already being sown in my my heart, reading through the Word of God. And on the very morning that that acquaintance came to me and made that offer, I was in Genesis chapter 14, and I read the words of Abram, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. And so when that acquaintance made that offer, I immediately knew how I would respond I will not allow you to say that you have made me rich. (laughs) For me, that just highlights the importance of remaining in the word of God because the clouds will form over our lives. Tests will surprise us. There will be temptations. And if we are not immersed in the word of God, we will lack the discernment necessary to make decisions clearly, quickly. I'm not always so discerning, but I sure am glad that I was on that day. Throughout history, we human beings have fallen far short of the purpose for which we were created. We've rebelled against God's sovereignty. We have taken our lives and things for ourselves. We have sought our own blessing rather than seeking to be a blessing to others. We have built our own kingdoms. And as the clouds of judgment were forming over humanity, from before the foundation of the world, God knew that we would need a high priest, that we would need the king of peace, the king of righteousness. The book of Hebrews speaks of Jesus as being according to the order of Melchizedek. What does that mean? 
Like Melchizedek, Jesus was appointed. He was ordained by God. He was not a Levite. He was from the tribe of Judah, from the line of David. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's from Psalm 110. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect... He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews says that like Melchizedek, Jesus was sustained by the power of an indestructible life. Jesus, the Son of God, birthed by the Holy Spirit, rose from the dead, confirming his eternal priesthood, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. If we draw near to God through Jesus... If we accept Jesus as our Savior and Lord, he is our high priest forever. His intercession is ongoing. It is eternal. The clouds of judgment built up on the horizon over humanity. And while we were in rebellion, despite our foolishness, Jesus identified with us and gave his life. Jesus, our high priest, in the ultimate act of life, love, sacrificed his life to save us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus, our high priest, this is amazing, is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. He gave his life for us out of covenant love. That covenant that was made with Abram. And we are commanded to love one another as Christ loved us. Jesus, our high priest, gave his life for the glory of the Father, in submission to the Father, so that we might be blessed by the Father's glory and victory. As children of Abraham, as children of God, we share in Christ's victory. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. If we have placed our faith in Christ, we are children of Abraham, children of God. Our high priest, the possessor of heaven and earth, has opened the way to victory over sin, death, and the devil for the glory of God most high. 
Jesus, our high priest, he was able to do this for us because he was not lured by the temptation of mixed blessings. Remember when Satan came to him and offered him the kingdoms of the world? He refused. He refused and chose to submit to the way of the Father, and he was obedient to death. And because he was obedient to death, he could pay the sacrifice once for all. He, Jesus, the perfect king of peace, the perfect king of righteousness, who gave his life for us that we might be free and live forever. And he is the one that we follow. And so when the dark clouds form on the horizon of our lives, the clouds darken and the wind picks up and we find ourselves in the midst of storm, storm of life. If we are followers of Jesus, if we live under the blessing of God, if we are followers of Jesus and we understand that we have been chosen to be channels of blessing, then when the storm hits, we will remain faithful to the covenant bonds of love. Those covenants that we have made before God, with God, if we're married with our spouse, with our families, with the family of faith, Not only will we remain faithful to the bonds of love, but in the midst of provision and victory, we will not take the glory for ourselves, but we will give the glory to God Most High. We'll recognize every blessing as something given from the hand of the Father. And we will not succumb to the lure of mixed blessings. May God help us As we follow God in the midst of storms, may we experience what Abram experienced. May we follow the example of Jesus. May we remain faithful to that which God has called us to for God's glory because we have our eyes set on the joy set before us and we run the race faithfully following our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's stand. So Jesus, we, we come before you and we thank you again for being faithful to the cross, for giving your life for us, that we might be set free. Thank you for taking our sin upon yourself. Lord, we're here by your grace. Each person here, either has gone through a storm, is in a storm, or will face a storm. And Lord, may we be found faithful. Thank you that you do not leave us alone. Thank you that you abide in us by your Holy Spirit. Thank you that you are present to counsel us, to provide us with discernment, wisdom, to lead us forward. And so we entrust ourselves to you, and we ask that your holy name be glorified through our lives. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you.